What's it like to move from the East Coast to the stunning Rocky Mountains of Utah? How does one decide to become a pediatric endocrinologist? Why is there such a demand for creating exceptional learning experiences and excellent educators in medicine? What is the Bills Mafia? And how does one associate with the Bills Mafia? Today on Talking Missions and Med Student Life, I interview Dr. Kathleen Timmy, an attending physician in pediatric endocrinology here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I've got Dr. Timmy. How are you doing, Dr. Timmy? Great. Good to be here. Um, and so you're actually an attending physician. And what, what field are you in? I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. So... Take us back to medical school. Did you, like, how did you end up becoming a pediatric endocrinologist? What did that look like? What, uh, what was your decision-making process? Yeah, so I actually was exposed to endocrine in undergrad. I took a, a bio-elective in endocrinology, and I thought it was kind of one of the most interesting things I had learned about. I think the hormone pathways are really intuitive and just kind of fascinating with all of these feedback loops. So I was exposed to the content kind of early on. And then at my medical school, our pediatrics department chair was an endocrinologist, and I really admired her and was able to spend some time with her in clinic and just liked that um, you could be a subspecialist but also have really good continuity and good relationships with your patients. Um, for me, I see most of uh, the kids that I treat every you know three to six months, so sometimes you know even more often than their general pediatrician. Wow. And I like being a subspecialist. I like uh, knowing a lot about a more narrow arena, um, but still feeling like I, I treat a lot of different conditions. I see a good variety of patients, so it keeps it really interesting. When you mentioned hormone pathways, I barely remember those. I remember there, there was a lot of arrows, yeah. you know, like TSH, you know, and a lot yeah. of like air, feedback loops and things like that. So you feel there's kind of, that came just naturally to you during school. Yeah, yeah, I just thought it was really fascinating how the body works with these feedback systems and mm-hmm. kind of keeping everything in checks and balances and mm-hmm. thought it was really intuitive. Now you went to med school back east. Where were you at? I was at the University of Buffalo. Okay. And I'm from Buffalo, so that was my my hometown school. And then as you started looking at residency programs in pediatrics, how did you wind up in Utah? I mean, like walk us through that. What was that like? Yeah, so I made a stop in Connecticut before coming to Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in Buffalo both for undergrad and medical school, mm-hmm. grew up in Buffalo, so really felt that it was time to you know experience living somewhere else. And I was looking for you know a medium-sized program that was close-knit um, with great academic opportunities and ended up really falling in love with the program at Yale. So I um, went there for a pediatrics residency and started some really interesting projects in medical education that I wanted to see through during fellowship Mm -hmm. and ended up staying there for endocrine fellowship as well. And then after that, I realized I only lived in the Northeast and I really only knew Yale's way of practicing pediatrics and endocrine. And I always admired physicians who had kind of diversity in their training, experienced, you know, different ways of practicing. And I wanted that for myself. I didn't want to just stay in one institution. I wanted to kind of, you know, expand my horizons, see what else was out there and also just 
personally experience living in another part of the country. Um, by that point, I had met my husband who lived in uh, Colorado during grad school and Arizona and New Mexico before we met in Connecticut, and he was really itching to come back to these mountains. Mm -hmm. And um, it just took, you know, an interview trip out here to see what he meant by that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Utah fits us really well in terms of our hobbies and hiking, camping, running, and being able to be outside all parts of the year. So you did all of your training back east, and I then did. you moved out yeah. west to become an attending physician. I did. Wow. Yeah, it's a huge jump. Yeah. First job after training was here, so it was a big move. I I didn't really know much about Utah or Salt Lake, and um, you know, just kind of sent a cold email out this way, seeing if there was any opportunities available, and mm -hmm. then. As I got further into the process, I realized I had a lot of, um, you know, mutual colleagues with some of the people here, and and it's been a really nice fit so far. And your passion for education, what I heard is that it started in med school, but also continued throughout your residency training. Yeah. What, what, what kind of opportunities did you have as a resident to be involved in teaching and education? Yeah, I mean, so I've always really loved teaching. I grew up in a dance studio. I loved kind of teaching the younger dancers, and there were even points where I thought that I might become a teacher instead of a physician. Um, but in residency, my favorite part of interneer was always having a medical student on the team because mm -hmm. I felt like I finally had a piece of knowledge to share, and it was just really exciting um, to be able to share that. And also for, you know, the few students that ended up going into pediatrics after rotating with us, it was just you know, a really neat experience to watch somebody go through that process. Um, so during residency, I got involved in um, the GME. I sat on a, a subcommittee for um, the executive subcommittee. So I got to see a little bit about what happens behind the scenes and curriculum development and program structure, which I thought was really interesting. And GME is graduate medical education. Graduate medical okay. education. So UME yeah. is undergraduate medical education. That's like medical school. Right. And GME is like the residency afterwards. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then through networking, I was able to sit on the LCME um, faculty subcommittee later on in residency and just kind of see what a process was like to review a medical school curriculum, um, mm -hmm. which was really neat. And I just always connected with the people who were in education. I thought they were enthusiastic about the same kind of things that I was. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it just kind of blossomed from there into a research project and fellowship. And then I decided to pursue my master's in education at that point. Wow. So you were able to get a master's in education while out at out back east or yeah so okay. in the process so oh I'm you're still in the process the, okay yeah, so right. in the cincinnati program okay. uh -huh. um, the online masters and i have two more courses of 10 left okay so i was able to start it in fellowship and i'm mm. still working through okay yeah um and then dr timmy like because like you know when i think back to my like like a lot of my peers, you know, we graduated med school and, and like I had this core group of friends. I don't know, like all, all of us who just love kids, like a core group of us went into pediatrics. I went into child psychiatry, but I remember very clearly that all my friends who went to pediatrics, they were very excited about doing a fellowship one day and then bless their hearts. Residency was just long. It was hard. And most of them decided not to do a fellowship. Mm -hmm. So, like, did you ever waver in this endocrine dream or were you ever tempted just to become a general pediatrician and just, you, you understand yeah, what I'm saying? I understand like, what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. Like, how, how'd you weather that? How'd you get through that? Like, what'd that look like for you? I mean, I think the temptation is there to, you know, stop training and finally start your life. Mm -hmm. um, but I've 
was just so enthusiastic about the topic. And I liked endocrine so much, I even thought about OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So for me, that was as important as the pediatric side of things. Um, and I also really enjoyed my residency training. So I you know, enjoyed the relationships that I made. I mm. loved being in New Haven. Um, I loved learning and taking care of kids. So I think there's sometimes there's also a temptation in the other direction too. Like, I just want to keep being a trainee for a little while longer mm -hmm. and then, you know, face the real world after that. Um, and I just, for me, I have a ton of respect for anybody who practices more general fields, general mm -hmm. pediatrics, but I would have been very overwhelmed having to know a lot you know, about everything. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like pediatricians are the great gatekeepers to everything else. And I think I would be afraid of missing something okay. or, you know, not knowing enough about every system or every, you know, every possible thing that a patient could come in with. So the fellowship, is it, how long is it? Three years. Three years. Yeah. And was it all clinical or was there some research or some education time built in? Or so what did that look like at Yale? Yeah, the yeah. first year typically is heavily clinical and then the last two are a little bit more research focused. Um, I was the only fellow my year, so I had a very heavy clinical first year and kind of a mix of both in my second year. But by the third year, it was more research focused and um, just kind of keeping up with some clinical activities. So mm -hmm. it actually was a, you know, pretty intense first year. But after that, I had a better, you know, work life balance. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of mentioned at the beginning but that when you came out here to Utah, I mean, when you, I mean, this is a, this is a great conversation because like I talked to students about this, like when you start, when you signed your first contract, mm -hmm. when you were able to kind of become an attending, when you had a, you know, a very clear voice in what your career was, what you wanted to be like, like, how'd you negotiate that? I mean, what'd you ask for? I mean, cause I assume that you could ask for more inpatient time or more outpatient mm -hmm. time or, or did you ask for like, you know, if you felt affinity for like, well, like diabetes as opposed to thyroid issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what did that look like? I mean, how did you do that as, as a fellow coming out to a new area, a new program? I mean, how did you, how did you negotiate what you wanted? Yeah, it was definitely a very foreign skill set. Mm -hmm. I think we're not used to asking for anything, mm -hmm. um, you know, other than admission and acceptance. Yeah, and, we're uh, kind of coached just you know, to take please it. Please just yeah. let me <laughs> yeah. let me come and join mm -hmm. the team. Definitely um, a turning so of the tables. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. a very interesting, you know, process interviewing. Um, definitely, definitely turns the tables, and um, you know, feeling like you're being recruited or that you're a value to a program rather than you know the other way around. Um, was really interesting. So for me, my number one priority was having some time to work on medical education related projects, specifically on helping people develop teaching skills. So any program or any, you know, potential place that didn't offer me those kind of opportunities in the near future, I kind of shied away from. Okay. Um, so that's one of the main reasons why I came out here, because there were some really interesting opportunities to get involved, um, both on the UME and GME side around training people how to teach. So that was my number one priority. And then I really like doing both general endocrine and diabetes. Um, some endocrinologists or some institutions really divide the two, but especially early on, I didn't want to lose either skill set. So it was really important that I had uh, clinics on both sides and I enjoy both sides equally. Mm -hmm. um, and then also a good mix of, you know, inpatient and outpatient without, you know, too much inpatient time because that can be pretty exhausting. Mm -hmm. So... You mentioned the teaching. So 
I know you're. So tell us about the students as teachers pathway. Was that was that already kind of being formed before you got here, or did you, or were, were you kind of the original force behind it? Like, how, how did that work out? And like, you know, just help people understand what that is. Yeah. yeah. So the students as teachers pathway is a really unique longitudinal experience for medical students to be exposed to some of the skills involved in being a clinician educator. So the idea is that. After medical school and even during medical school, we're tasked with teaching our peers, patients, um, colleagues, and eventually trainees, students, without much formal training on how to do so. Mm -hmm. I think medical schools now are a lot more mindful to that. Um, But the pathway is for students who have this particular interest. I think it attracts people who have had experience in teaching and, and really want that to be a part of their career. So it's a a four-year program. Um, The first couple years are um, based in these workshops and and sessions. There's four every semester. We try to keep them very interactive and help build a teaching skill set. We also uh, have our students uh, teach in front of the classroom and get some feedback on that. So it's a nice way to sort of practice those skills. And then as of right now, we just have first years and second years because it started two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually in the third year, we hope to do more experiential learning mm-hmm. alongside the clerkships. And then um, everything will culminate in a capstone education project cool. where students identify a mentor and are really just trying to create an educational um, intervention and assess its impact. And it's um, their projects are very interesting. I'm very impressed. So um, like what kind of... Can you give me an example of what kind of projects like they're working on? Yeah, so I'm working with um, one of our students on evaluating what an exceptional learning environment is okay. through mm-hmm. focus groups with students. Um, we have other students who are doing um, more community-based projects where they're you know, interacting with students from high schools or elementary schools, um, people in the community trying to teach on different topics. Um, And a lot of it is tailored uh, to their own clinical interests. So Mm -hmm. if someone's interested in pediatrics, it might take more of a pediatrics sort of flavor. Um, At this point, our second years are mostly developing project ideas and identifying mentors. So I haven't seen any um, through to completion yet, but it's, you know, very interesting. And the pathway um, started, it was developed before I came here. Mm -hmm. So I um, co-lead it with a neurologist, and he was working with one of the pediatric chiefs to develop the program, and then she ended up going to another institution. So right around the time that she was leaving, I was coming in, and so I took on kind of the co-director position. Mm-hmm. When I when I talk about admissions and talk about our med school a lot, I would say a lot of our applicants and a lot of our students are very interested in teaching in an academic health center. First of all, kind of a career, but also just becoming better teachers. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about the students as teachers' pathways. You know, like teaching is a skill, like mm-hmm. you said, and can we teach the students to become better teachers? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be really popular, and the students it seems to really resonate with them. And I feel the students have very strong opinions about like the quality of their education and who's a good teacher, yeah. who's not a good teacher. So I think that's like an excellent opportunity to like challenge them. Okay, you're going to be in front of the class one day, mm-hmm. you're going to be in charge of that small group one day, you're going to be leading the clinic and teaching in the clinic one day, how are you going to do it? Mm-hmm. I think I, I think that's a great impetus for, like, change, because I think the students are fairly opinionated about this stuff. Like, does, right. that, does, that, what mat, does that match with what you, what you see on your end? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think even on the GME side, too, mm-hmm. there's just more and more interest in becoming good teachers, and I don't know if that 
stems from kind of where who your role models are. So in medical school, we look up to you know really great teachers, and I think the same thing um, in residency training. We really admire the people who teach well and teach effectively, and I think we try to model our careers after them. I think that's some of it. And then also just trying to create some balance in life. Um, so I think people recognize that having a career that's 100% clinical can be really tiring. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, I like that every single day is different. I like that I can come and be here with you and then go to clinic in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, it's just a really nice way to keep keep my days interesting and keep me motivated and excited on, on both fronts. And I think the students are seeing that too. If you can identify one thing that students struggle with as they become teachers, what do you, what do you see as a common theme? What, what do they have to work on? I think it's something that we all have to work on, but mm -hmm. um, more of like imposter syndrome, like feeling, um, feeling as a learner, how do you have something to offer? How do you have something, you know, to teach a group and, realizing that we're all just acquiring, you know, these micro skills as we go and we do have things to offer and things to teach and even just different ways of approaching things. So I think some of it is just having the confidence to realize that you have something to offer mm -hmm. um, and being able to do that. So I, I hope that our pathway gives them a safe space to kind of practice some of those skills and receive feedback in a, you know, a constructive and yeah. kind way um, so that they feel even more confident when they're residents to teach. Yeah, I, I love what you said, Dr. Timmy, because when I think about it, um, you know, what, what do we do as doctors? I mean, we teach our patients about their bodies. Mm -hmm. I mean, my own personal philosophy in a perfect world, you know, everyone would go to med school, everyone would learn about their bodies and we would take care of our bodies and things like that. It, it, you know, it's, it's obviously not set up that way. Sure. So a core group of people, you know, go on to health science careers and to me, they educate, they teach people about their bodies. Mm -hmm. and to me, that's like what you do when you go in to see the doctor. Oh, you mm -hmm. learn about your body. You learn what's working well or not so well. You learn about this medication or that procedure. Right. And to me, it, to me, medicine, the health sciences, it's, it's like an educational endeavor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I teach in our med school. I can always become better. But I, I like what you said. It really resonated with me because like when I interact with students, sometimes they have this, you know, imposter syndrome they don't believe they should be here mm -hmm. and i challenge them like look look how much you know compared yeah. to like a year ago yeah right look how much you know compared to two years ago mm -hmm. you have so much knowledge mm -hmm. how do you communicate that how do you share that with others mm -hmm. so I just, I just love what you're doing i love i love this teaching pathway that you're creating yeah it's, it's beautiful really fun. It's, yeah one of the most exciting things i do all right so a couple of questions before we wrap up There's, these are kind of fun and silly sure so the silly one is Anytime I meet someone from Buffalo, I just have to ask about the Bills. So how many games have you been to? Are you part of the Bills Mafia? Oh, do you man. know what I'm talking about? I do know okay. what you're talking about. Um, I hope nobody from Buffalo is listening because I will not, you know, do the city justice. But I'm, you know, uh, an associate of the Bills Mafia. Okay. I'm not really a football <laughs> fan. Um, I don't have cable. I don't really watch games on the weekends. But my brother... Mm -hmm is, you know, definitely like a rank-and-file member of the Bills Mafia. Um, he's had season tickets since high school, lives in Minneapolis, and flies home for games. Wow. Um, and for people who don't know what the Bills Mafia is, can you explain it to him? Because sure. I have this image, but I'm not sure this image is the correct image. Yeah, so. I mean, it's just the cult that follows the Buffalo Bills, okay. you know, rain or shine, good or bad. Um, you also, won't find truer fans and Buffalo fans. I'll, and I also, I, I get the sense, just watching clips online, they tend to get really rowdy pre and post game oh yeah um to the point where like they're like 
intentionally, unintentionally hurting themselves because they jump into tables. Yeah. That seems to be a thing. Yeah, jumping on tables. Um, I mean, the tailgate is, you know, even more important than okay. the game. So it's just a full day. Does your brother jump on the tables? You know, he probably it seems, it's, it seems like really dangerous. On the table, okay. but he might be like videotaping, cheering it on. Yeah, okay. all right. He definitely would be a part of it. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, in a more serious question, like talking about diabetes, um, like I, I'm just curious, like what do you see, like with, with, with kids and teenagers nowadays with their diet? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? I, I read about these insulin shortages. I mean, what, what's your take on all this? Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. So. You know, in terms of type 1 diabetes, I think things are headed in the right direction. So mm. there's definitely a lot more technology for patients and families to take ownership of their condition. Mm-hmm. Um, there's continuous glucose monitors now, whereas, you know, not that long ago, the only way we could check glucose was through urine test strips. So mm. we have a lot more real-time data, which I think allows us as clinicians to make more informed choices about insulin dosing mm. and make more meaningful changes. Um, and then insulin pumps, I think, have really revolutionized things where, um, you're able to just take a little bit more control of the diabetes and um, and also go about living your regular day-to-day life. So I think in general, things are getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely an increase in type 2 diabetes, and I think that's related to the fact that kids are more sedentary than they've ever been, you know, spending more time in front of the TV. And so you're seeing more type, two more type 2 in kids. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, even a fair amount of it here in Utah. So, mm. is that reversible if, if, uh, if the the kid, if the children like eat healthy and exercise and lose weight? Because I remember learning about that with adults. Mm-hmm. That you know, there's like, uh, again, I'm not an endocrinologist, so I use very poor terms. But like, there's like this zone where it's kind of reversible if like there's some things that start happening uh-huh. and like you know you can take the metformin, but then kind of back off yeah. before you're full blown on insulin dependent. Is that is there still like there's a zone or yeah with okay. type two? I mean, there's still hope in coming off of insulin. Okay. So by the time I see kids with type two, we're probably having the conversation about starting insulin mm-hmm. um, and doing full teaching on diabetes. But with lifestyle modifications, a little bit of weight loss, exercise. Uh, oftentimes they can come off of insulin and maybe just maintain things on metformin um, or, you know, completely off of everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but doing that is easier said than done. As a child, I know before I turn on, the, I, in the past when I've talked to you, I've made jokes because as, as a child psychiatrist, I manage kids' diabetes from time to time inside uni mm-hmm. when people get a med for more of a psychiatric reason. And I think it's really hard. I mean, I've seen, you know, because when you think about teenage adolescence and wanting to be your own person and having control over your life and not all teenagers but there seems to be this core subset where this control issue kind of spills over into diabetic diabetic food control sure and i think it's it's really rough it's really difficult um growing up and again like everyone i mean people are making choices some people are making bad choices and then just throw in this this pretty serious disease and this need for constant management mm-hmm. it can be it can be really combustible at times so yeah i don't know if you've seen that on your side at all like this control issue where teenagers kind of get into it with their parents and mm-hmm. the diabetes then is kind of on the table to kind of like manipulate or argue or fight over have you seen that at oh, all absolutely or, and i think um the technology you know also plays in in an interesting way so some of the 
the continuous glucose monitors, parents often have a share app where they can see really? wow. what is the blood sugar. So then you also have, you know, adolescents who are trying to be independent and responsible for their health care, who are maybe out at a friend's house, and then their parents are texting or calling saying, hey, I see your blood sugar is high. Did you forget your insulin? What's going on? So it just creates a very interesting Fascinating dynamic. dynamic. Yeah, so parents yeah. not only are monitoring their kids kind of like, you know, what social media sites are you on? Sure. But they're also monitoring your glucose levels. Yeah, and did you give your insulin? So um, wow. So what's, what's your what's your official position? Like, should parents have access to that information? Should they have the app? Or are you kind of agnostic when it comes to this? Or I think it's or is that an a complicated individual question? decision. Okay. I think for younger kids, it's very helpful for families to have that mm-hmm. share app, both for their peace of mind and for safety. So in the middle of the night, if a blood sugar is headed low, you know, for a parent to know about that, I think is really crucial. But then I think there has to be this thoughtful letting go process that the endocrinologist should ideally be having conversations with the families about Mm -hmm. where you're sort of giving the child more and more responsibility and you're doing less of kind of the hovering and and watching over things um but maybe just using that for spot checks every once in a while to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do and certainly if things are headed in the wrong direction and you know when they go to the doctor's office and the a1c is high and um you know, we can see on their downloads whether or not their bolus saying mm-hmm. giving their insulin, then maybe that's time to negotiate some closer supervision. Dr. Timmy, I love talking about this. So my last question, and like, um, so, you know, teenagers are very good at, you know, there's parental controls, mm-hmm. right? And teenagers can kind of get around those to access websites they shouldn't or whatever. Right. Have you ever seen a teenager, like, I use this word loosely, hack the app? Have they been able to manipulate the data in a way? Or is that... Is that is you that, know, I haven't, that... I haven't seen that. Okay. So there's two versions of that. Okay, there's the app that the patient downloads, mm-hmm. and then there's the share app that the families download. So they're separate and on separate devices. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen anybody like go in and delete their parents' app or something, but I, I wouldn't be surprised okay. if that happened. Well, I hope we didn't give that idea to anyone yeah, out there. I'm just no, curious. <laughs> so... Because like the, the the reason why going bring it all back the reason why I love medicine is that it's like the intersection of like really cool science with people. Right. It's like you know it's 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 like um, humanities combined with like the scientific knowledge mm-hmm. and you know diabetes insulin it sounds like it's grown by leaps and bounds mm-hmm. you know a lot cooler technology a lot more knowledge. But at the end of the day, you're still interacting with people. Right. And then teenagers and families and dynamics and communication, expectations, things like that. So that's why I love being a doctor because it kind of combines both those spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, like what I like to teach the students because I think they get at times overly focused on the science. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, well, you know, it, your science is only as good as like people who like take the medication mm-hmm. or like you know, do these things. And like, there's still this free will and humanity aspect to it. So, right. I mean, even with all this technology, we're not making big strides in A1Cs or diabetes control because mm-hmm. there is that, that human aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is the most challenging part, but also some of the most exciting to navigate. Yeah. Well, Dr. Timmy, thank you so much for coming on the pod. I think we'll be talking to each other soon, maybe on future podcasts. I hope so. But uh, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.